Today, I want to talk about um, Merriam-Webster's 2022 Word of the Year. How many of you guys know what gaslighting is? You heard that phrase? And my guess is, even if you don't know what it is, you've heard it a bunch lately, like more in the last year than ever before. It's really not a new term. It refers back to a movie called Gaslight from the 40s. But it's suddenly a big part of our conversation, our, our cultural conversation. And, and the idea behind it is that you're being told that you, what you experienced or what you know is true isn't really true. It didn't really happen, right? And so I was trying to think of, a, of an illustration for this, and somebody pointed out, um, how many of you guys watched The Office? Okay, the, the relationship between Jim and Dwight is a gaslighting relationship for all the, the whole thing, right? And, the whole, and I was thinking, I was looking at it, and I was trying to figure out a good illustration of this, and there's this one time, if you don't know who Dwight is in the office, he is this self-appointed volunteer security guard at the office. He's Barney Fife. And so he finds a joint in the parking lot, and so he has to conduct an investigation, He's got to figure out who in the office was smoking marijuana. And so you can imagine how a self-imposed volunteer security guard conducting office interviews would go, right? Nobody's taking him seriously, and he's gone through four or five people. And then he gets to Jim, and as they sit down, Jim says, I'm just saying we can't be sure that it wasn't you. That's ridiculous, Jim. Well, marijuana is a memory loss drug, Dwight. Well, that's dumb. I would remember if I had done that this morning. Not if it wiped your memory. Wait, I'm conducting the interview here. No, you said when we walked in that I was going to be conducting this interview. How much pot have you smoked, Dwight? Now, as funny as that is, right, that's gaslighting, right? Like he's, he's convincing Dwight that he's losing his mind. And that's actually the, kind of the point of gaslighting. It's, it's a form of psychological abuse. And the idea behind it is uh, if, if you can be told that what you know is true isn't true enough times with enough questions by the right person, you just sort of think you're losing your mind. Like, maybe I'm insane. Maybe I don't remember doing that. Th- maybe I don't remember that conversation that way, right? And in the end, it ends up being a, a form of control. And really the the idea here is that there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between what I'm experiencing and what I'm being told. With that in mind, can I read you something that Jesus said to the disciples in John 16? He says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That almost feels like Jesus is gaslighting his disciples. Now, I know he's not, right? But I I get that. There's like a disconnect here between what he says is true and the experience. Like, it doesn't feel better that Jesus is gone. He says, it's good for you that I'm leaving. And I have to admit, even now, it doesn't feel good that Jesus is gone. Like, he was here, and now he's not here. Like, he was on earth. He was here, and he's gone. And somehow that's good. 
There's a disconnect there. I'm not feeling the thing that he is saying. My experience doesn't match that. Let me, let me ask this way. How many of you guys have ever wished that you could walk with Jesus? Like that you could have been here when he was doing his thing? And wouldn't it be easier to be a Christian if you could be hanging out with Jesus while he's doing the thing? Wouldn't it be cool to be standing next to him while he hugs a leper and the leprosy just like falls away? Wouldn't it be encouraging to have him stand there with you and point to somebody and be like, go talk to them? Okay. Just to be around him, to experience that would have been amazing. Most of us wish we could have seen it. If I could offer you a trade right here today, you can trade in the Holy Spirit to have Jesus here physically. Would you do it? Think about that for a second. I think my tendency is to think, well, yeah, I would do that. Like, it would be so cool to have him available. Like, what if I ran into him like once or twice a day, every day? I see him at breakfast and he tells me what my day is going to be like. What if I could just call him? Like, I have a question. There's this guy at work. He's a jerk to me. What do I do? And he's like, he's your pastor. Shut up. <laughs> right, wouldn't it be cool if you could just have him here? What a, I feel like most of us would make that trade. I had a, a day this week where some of the other pastors and I all had some time around lunch at the same time. So we, we went to lunch together and we went to the mall because I needed to get a new phone case. And so while we're there, I'm at the phone place. Um, I'm standing at the desk. I've already picked it out. I'm, I'm checking out. And I didn't even realize there was a guy there next to me. And he goes, Jason? And so... I kind of come to my senses and I look up at him and he goes, it's Ty. We went to school together. We went to high school together. How, how have you been? And like, have you ever had that moment where it's been 20 something years, 30 years? And like in your mind, everybody in high school looks like they're in high school still. And I had that moment where I'm like, whoa, how are you? Like, what, what have you been up to? And he tells me about his oil field job that he's had for a long time and he, he likes what he's doing. And then inevitably the way the conversation goes, he goes, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor now. If you ever want to ruin a conversation, <laughs> you're sitting next to somebody on the plane that won't shut up, just bring up that you're a pastor. <laughs> it was this most awkward moment. Like he looked down at his shoes and didn't know what to say, right? And here's the thing. I could feel the Holy Spirit saying to me, tell him why. Why are you different now? Why have you chosen this for your life? What is different now than when he knew you? Talk to him about Jesus. But I just kind of swallowed my tongue. And a few seconds went by. And Actually, it's really aw full confession. Wasn't last week's message about convenient Christianity? Oh, that one. Right? That, it, only, it was only a few seconds and the, the, the opportunity went and... And then suddenly he asked me, well, well, have you seen Adam? And we started talking about this other guy that we went to school with. But I tell you what, if Jesus had been standing there, I think I'd have done that differently. If Jesus was standing there and he puts his hand on my back and he's like, hey, go tell him why, I'd have went and done it, right? If Jesus wanted me to be his ambassador in this moment and he was there, boy, I think I'd have done it. And, and the reason is, first of all, I would have been accountable to him. Like, if I didn't do it, I would have had to turn around and look him in the eye and explain why. 
But also, I think it's a lot like when you're being trained for a new job and, and you hang out with the boss for the first week or two, right? And so the boss is taking you through all the things that you're supposed to do and he absorbs all of the risk. Like if this goes sideways, it was Jesus' idea, right? Like if I look stupid, that's not me looking at him, right? It, if this doesn't go well, he absorbs all of the risk, so I'm not taking any. So then I'm really confident. If I could have had Jesus there, I would have had all kinds of confidence, and I wonder if the reason that we feel that way, if the reason that we would trade having the Holy Spirit for having Jesus is actually because we have a lot of questions about the Holy Spirit. Like, what did we get in this deal? What, how is this better that he's gone and we have the Holy Spirit because it doesn't feel better? Maybe that's because we've got some questions. And maybe you've got questions like, um, what, what is the Holy Spirit really all about? Like, is it just God's way of being in all of us? Right? There's millions of us. There was one Jesus, and so this is, the, this is the way that we all get a little bit of God. Is that what the Holy Spirit does? Is the Holy Spirit an open phone line in my heart? Like, he's just set up a phone booth in there that I can just go into at any moment, right? If you're under 30, it's like you've already got him on speakerphone on your cell phone, if you don't know what a phone booth is. It's like a direct connection to God. Maybe you know some theological stuff about him, like Ephesians tells us that he seals us until the day of redemption. You know some things that like are Holy Spirit related, but you've got questions. And then there's the other stuff, like the power stuff, the, the, the miracles and speaking in tongues and prophecy. And like you read about these things and you hear about them in church and you've got questions and you're not sure what to do with those questions, right? And I, I would recognize that in a room this size, especially when we're talking about the other stuff, the power stuff, there's going to be different opinions, right? On one end of the spectrum, there are some of us that are really into the Holy Spirit part of our faith. I'd say that like, this is the part that is the most interesting to me. This is where there's power. This is where uh, it looks the most like the book of Acts. It kind of comes alive. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where people say, I think that that power was for the apostles. I'm not even sure it was for us. And then there's a whole group of us in the middle that would say, I'm not exactly sure what I think, but I know I'm uncomfortable with it. It's kind of like electricity, like I just kind of don't go near it. And so I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I live like there's only two members of the Trinity. And can I make a confession? As a pastor in 2022, I have been on both ends of this spectrum. And I've been in environments on both ends of this spectrum. And the where, where I'm at now, where I have landed right now, is that I believe in the first one. I believe that God's power is available now, and yet I live like the last one. Because I'm uncomfortable around it sometimes. And I'm uncomfortable around it because it seems like it would be so easy to fake. Right? Like, I want to see a real miracle. Like, I want to see somebody that doesn't have an arm get an arm. Right? Like, I want to see a miracle. Like, I, I believe that that's possible. I believe that our God could do that. That's what I want to see. But then I hate it whenever, whenever it looks like it could be faked. 
Whenever it feels like I, I'm not, it's not any different hearing this um, service, this Holy Spirit service, than it would be to go to a psychic. Like, of course, somebody's back hurts in this room. We're all standing on concrete. Like, it's, it's now I'm not saying that doesn't mean God isn't doing something in there. It just so, seems so easy to be faked that I get uncomfortable with it, right? And I, and I don't like, that, like the, the services where they teach you how to speak in tongues by teaching you to babble first and then eventually God takes over. And I don't see that in Scripture and it makes me nervous. And, and so I believe in the things, but I'm uncomfortable with it. And so I basically just ignore it. And I don't know if that's you, but my guess is that you are somewhere on this spectrum. And maybe part of the problem is not what we disagree about on this spectrum of God's power. Maybe it's the paradigm of how we're looking at the Holy Spirit in the first place. See, the problem is no matter where you're at on that spectrum, the conversation is all built around this premise that the Holy Spirit is God's power available to us. And on this end, you've got, uh, I like that power. I want to participate. I want to play. And at this end, you say, well, I think that the apostles were the ones that got that power. And everybody in the middle is like, it's, I don't know. I don't go anywhere near my fuse box. I'm not going anywhere near this. And maybe it's not about the power at all. Maybe when Jesus said, it's good that I go and that you get the Holy Spirit, it had nothing to do with the power Maybe we misunderstand what the Holy Spirit is here to do in the first place. And so today we're going to talk about that as we get back into the book of John. We're going to be in John 16. And um, I'm, going to I'm going to just briefly touch on a few verses that we already talked about last week in John 15. And so just to remind you, um, Jesus has been talking to his disciples all evening for three three chapters in John. He's been talking to his disciples about getting ready to leave. And then he tells them, last week we read that you're going to be hated in the world. Christians are going to be hated. And in the middle of that, he said this, verse 26 of 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You are going to have a job to do. You're going to be my ambassadors out in the world. You're going to be my witness, but it's going to be a Holy Spirit-empowered job. You guys are going to be a team, the Holy Spirit and you. That is going to matter here in a minute. Now, have you ever, have you ever had a moment that you might call a bombshell moment in your life? Maybe you heard words like, I want a divorce or you're fired, or you heard from your kid, I don't want to live with you anymore. I don't like it here. Right? You know that, that bombshell moment when there's more of a conversation that happens after that, but your ears are ringing after that. It's like shell shock. It's like you don't hear the rest of the conversation because that was so shocking to you. That's where we find the disciples in this conversation. But in order to understand it, can we just zoom out for a minute from, from this chapter of John? What would it have been like to actually walk with Jesus? What would it have been like to have him here in your life? Let's just pick Peter and let's just imagine what it was like to be sitting on the boat soaking wet from a night of fishing that didn't go well. 
and your nets are all tangled. And then from the shore, this guy who's been getting a little bit famous in the area, he seems like he might be a big deal. He yells out to you, hey, throw your nets over on this side. And you do, and you haul in the most fish you've ever caught. And then as you get to shore, and you're dragging this blessing onto shore, he's like, what if you left the blessing of the fish here, and we go on an adventure? You want to be a fisher of men with me? And you think, this could be the Messiah. This could be something big. And so you run home, you tell your wife, like, I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. It might be a month, it might be a year, but I want to go on this adventure with Jesus. And then you witness his first healing miracle as he heals Peter's mother-in-law, right? And then imagine what it was like to, to be there and be passing out the bread and the fish the day that Jesus turned a Lunchable into a feast, Right? Like, what, what would it have been like to actually be the one holding on to the miracle? Like, every time I put my hand in the basket and I hand out a fish, I reach back in and there's more fish. Like, this guy over here, he's stuffed with bread, but I've got so much in the basket, it's stuffed too. Imagine your grip on the boat in the middle of the night as the waves are crashing overboard and you think that we're all going to die tonight and then to have Jesus step onto that boat and say, Be still and how your grip would just relax in the presence of one who could command the waves. Who is this, right? Imagine the, seeing the fear and the rage just disappear out of the demoniac's eyes as he's delivered, and his little children come running up to him for the first time in a year. Dad's safe again. Do you remember what that was like? What, what was it like to be in the, around all that hope and energy and momentum, like we're going somewhere. This is important. Things are changing in our country and in our world. Imagine what it would have been like to be in the presence of that kind of authority too. It says that Jesus taught as one had never taught. He taught with authority because it was literally God opening the scriptures for them. Imagine that. And then layer on top of that the relational warmth that just getting to be friends with Jesus would have been like. Imagine what it was like in the morning as they, they rolled up the mats that they were sleeping on right next to Jesus, and he's like, what did you dream about? Imagine what it would have been like to be sitting around the, the campfire for breakfast talking about your family and your hopes for your kids. What would it have been like to get a hug from Jesus or to have his hand on your shoulder when you're nervous? or to make eye contact with him as he sends you out. Imagine what that was like. And then to hear him say, I'm leaving. Imagine what it was like for these guys. I'm not going to stay here anymore with you. I'm leaving. And, and people are going to hate you when I'm gone. See, since all, since from chapter 13 on, like all evening for them, six months for us, like we've been listening to him say, this is how you're going to do this without me. And I think he picks up on the fact that their ears are ringing. I think he hears, he notices that the, the attitude in the room has changed because this is what he says in 16.4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Like, I didn't want to burden you with this while we were walking around together. But now, I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Like, I think he notices they're not even asking about the details. They're just shocked. You're leaving? Their ears are ringing. You're, you're, what, what do you mean you're leaving? You're what this is all about. Right? Like, I don't think we could do this without you. And imagine John, who's writing this. We think that John was Jesus' best friend. He described himself as the one Jesus loved. Imagine John. Like, what do you mean you're leaving? I gave up my life for this. And that's all that they're hearing, and Jesus knows it. They were so broken, they were so upset that they couldn't focus on anything else. They were just sad. And that is the setting for the verse that we read earlier. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. That was Jesus' answer to these guys, the ones who had been with him for three years, the ones who saw all the things, the ones who were best friends with Jesus. And as they were wrestling with what it was going to be like to not have him, that's how he answered. It's actually good for you that I'm going. And he says, it's good because I'm going to send the helper. Now, in, in Greek, that word is parakletos. You might have heard paraklete before. And the idea is one who is called alongside, somebody who is invited, who has been given a purpose to walk next to, to be next to you. It's actually why I've chosen to talk through the ESV today. We normally talk through another translation because it chooses to translate this as helper. I think that's a great translation. That when I leave, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to call one alongside you to do it with you. And listen, I'm sure that they had a hard time believing this. I don't, maybe not the spirit part, but that it was going to be better. I think they had a hard time believing that it was good that he was leaving. We have a hard time believing this, right? Just a few minutes ago, we said we'd rather have him. Like, it would be easier if Jesus was right here with us. But here's the thing. I don't think that Jesus is a liar, And so if it can be true for these guys, in their context, with what they had to deal with when he said this, then it can be true for us too. And if that's the case, then maybe we ought to pay attention to how he describes this afterwards, because he goes on after this, he says it's going to be good for you, and then he explains why. So if he can explain why to those guys in that kind of environment, we ought to pay attention, because for us it doesn't feel like it's really true, that it's better Let's talk about how Jesus saw this. How is it possible? He goes on, verse 8. And when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, so he says, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you this helper, the Holy Spirit. And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, and this Holy Spirit's going to do three things for you. He's going to do the the miracles and tongues and prophecy stuff over here, the power stuff, and then he's going to make your life better over here, and then he's going to get rid of all of the bad guys. That's, That's not what he said. He didn't say it's going to be better for you because it's all going to be fun and okay. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to convict. 
The Holy Spirit's role when he gets here will be to convict the world. And, and this is not just a legal term. Like when I think convict, I think that's the end of the trial, right? The jury comes back and they're like, guilty, and they're convicted. And it means that you're wrong. And, and that's not... A, it's not a wrong translation or wrong way to think about it. It's just kind of incomplete. Because this word is not only translated convict, it's also translated exposed. In John 3.20, it says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for their fear that their deeds will be exposed. I think the idea here is that the Holy Spirit is going to show it for what it is. It's going to bring it into the light, not just wrong, but clearly wrong, like obvious in front of everybody that this is wrong and this is right. And notice what he says here. He says that he's going to do that about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I heard another pastor explain this in a way that I loved. See, sin is the condition of man. Righteousness is the condition of God. And when those two things come bumping up against each other, the necessary outcome is judgment. And so he says that the, the world doesn't believe in me. That there's, a, there's a, gonna be this sin that the Holy Spirit is gonna be convicting or exposing the fact that they are sinners. And the ultimate example of that is that they've chosen not to believe in Jesus. The ultimate slap in God's face is to reject his son, right? But that's not the only sin, like in my life. In fact, I see these things working out in my life, right? I see, like whenever I'm a jerk to my kids, right? I don't know if, I don't know if that's, I'm the only parent in the room that takes it too far sometimes, right? But like my kids are old enough now that they look like adults, and so I kind of want to smack them like adults, and it's not right, right? I don't, I don't smack. I don't kick my kids, right? But that desire's in me, and so I'll put them in their place, right? And I'll tell them why they're wrong, and then I'll go sit down in my chair all arrogant, like, yeah, I got them. And then it's like the Holy Spirit just sort of washes over me. Like, why are you such a jerk to your kid? Like, they need your affection, not your aggression. And I just like, oh, gosh, my sin is exposed in me. Right? Or I'll be sitting here in worship and we sing a song that we have sang hundreds of times. I've seen these lyrics my whole life, right? And still, while I'm there, I can just be completely wrecked in the presence of God. You're so holy. How amazing that I get to be in your presence. Right? That's the Holy Spirit exposing the righteousness of God to me. Right? And so what I see here is that the Holy Spirit's role in exposing or convicting sin, righteousness, and judgment is all about the gospel, right? The reason it's better to have the Holy Spirit than Jesus is not that it was a trade, Jesus for the Holy Spirit. It's that Jesus had to leave through the cross and his resurrection and his ascension into glory because he had to do that or we would not have the gospel. We had no way to be right with God. And he says, it's actually better that I leave through the cross and you will have the Holy Spirit to remind you that it was good that I went through the cross. The Holy Spirit will be at work in our 
lives to point to this moment, right? He's leaving, but if he didn't leave, we wouldn't have the work of the cross at all. And so he sends the Holy Spirit to make that known in our life, to work on us and the world around us. And even to the point that he says, judgment, because Satan is already judged. He says, you don't want to be on the the wrong side of this battle. When we look back, you're going to realize that Satan was already a defeated foe. And it's as if he says to the world, you've chosen the wrong team. Right? And then he keeps going. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Your ears are still ringing. You're still hung up on the fact that I'm leaving. And I realize I can't just give you all of the things I want to tell you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, this isn't the first time. Have you noticed that the way Jesus describes the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth? Right? Like the spirit has power. The spirit does good things in our, in our emotions. And he, right? There's a lot of ways to describe the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is choosing is the spirit of truth. And he says he will guide you into all truth. And that sounds good, Right? Like, wouldn't it be nice to actually live there where it's like the Holy Spirit's in you and he just tells you what's true? He helps you sort things out? That sounds great until it happens, right? Because here's the thing, I don't actually want to be guided into all truth. I already know what's true. I'm already good. I've already got it figured out. I already see the world clearly. I don't need to see anything any differently, And here's the problem. Every time that the Spirit guides me into truth, he's guiding me away from something I already thought was true. He's taking me from what was wrong to what's right. And that is hard. Right? We have a a problem. In fact, the implication is that I need guided in the first place, that my starting place was wrong. And I can tell you that every single project around my house, like I don't care if I'm planting a bush or building a fence, or rebuilding my bathroom, at about the 50% mark, my wife will walk in. You're not doing it right. I'm like, what do you mean I'm not doing it right? I already bought the materials. I bought a new tool to do this. We already have that paint color in the can. Well, I saw on Pinterest that this isn't the way. Joanna Gaines doesn't do it like this. I think Joanna Gaines might be the Antichrist. Like, she is breaking up marriages all over America, right? Like, but here's the thing. I don't like to be wrong. Like, I don't like that moment when she walks in and she's like, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, oh, I hate to be wrong. This idea, though, that the Spirit's role in my life is to take me from being wrong to the truth. And notice that it doesn't say my truth, the truth truth. Now, maybe you're here and you're young enough that you actually use that phrase, my truth, and maybe you're here and you have your arms crossed every time you hear your grandkids say that, and you're like, my truth. Whether you've used that expression or not, we all tend to want God to rubber stamp our experiences and our ideas. We want God to vote the way that we vote, right? We want to hear that the way that I think is 
correct, that I've got it figured out. We want him to confirm our biases. And we might even ask questions like, all right, God, um, should I do this or should I do this? And he's like, neither one of those. Right? You go, you're like, okay, here's my career options, God. Should I do this or should I do this? And he's like, are you kidding me? You've already decided. You just want me to pick. Right? We have a tendency to think that it's our truth that we live by. And it says that he's going to guide us to the truth. And then did you notice, I think this is really interesting, in verse 13, it says that he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Now, wait a minute. Isn't the Holy Spirit God? God the Spirit won't be speaking the things that he wants to say on his own? When I think of authority, I think of authorized. And it's as if the Holy Spirit has been authorized to say certain things. He's been authorized to do certain things. And it says here, He's not not be doing it under his own authority. That he subjects himself to the authority of Jesus. That the third member of the Trinity, while he's equal in value and power and importance, puts himself under the authority of Jesus. That's actually a theme that we read all through the Gospels, especially in John. Even Jesus says that. He says, I don't do things that I want to do or say. I do what the Father tells me to do and say. Right? That there is this authority structure. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do things under his own authority, and yet we tend to act like he should do things under ours. Right? Like we want to be the ones who tell the Holy Spirit what to do. We think because it's God's power available to us that we somehow are wielding it, that we've got some authority. So he doesn't even come with his own authority. How much bravado does that take for me to step in there between him and the son and say, I'm in charge? And Jesus keeps going. Verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. The Holy Spirit will bring glory to Jesus Christ. That is why he's here. That is what his job is. The Holy Spirit brings glory to Jesus. So I looked up this word glory. In the Greek, it's it's a word called doxazo. And in the Greek, it kind of means like what we mean in English. It means glory. It means like on a pedestal. It means important, right? Do you guys know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew that they were using when Peter and John and James and Jesus were walking around. They knew Hebrew, they knew they had the Hebrew scriptures, but most of the quotes in the New Testament are actually from the Greek version that they were reading, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, this word doxazo is used to translate some other Greek words or some other Hebrew words for for holy And I think it's really interesting. It's really telling kind of what's behind this idea of of glory, okay? One of them is glory in Hebrew could could mean the one with the most weight, like the heaviest thing in the room, like the thing with the most gravity, like when the person walks in with the most gravity and all of that, like magnetically, just everybody is drawn to that person. That's glory in the Hebrew, 
And another version of it is in Exodus 32, doxazo is used to translate another word that means shining. Actually, it means shining, like it, 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 it's like bull's horns, like, like beams of light that are just bursting forth out of something like horns, like shining. And it's, it's actually describing Moses' face when Moses comes down off of the mountain. See, if you don't know the story, Moses had spent some time with God, right? And so in this moment, he, he says, can I see your glory? And God goes, no, you'll die, Right? But, but, but you could look at like the back of my sandal as I walk away. Like I'll, like, I'll let you see just as I'm leaving. And Moses gets just a peep at this awe-inspiring, fall-on-your-face, compelling but terrifying glory of God. And then he comes down to the mountain, and it's like it's all over him. It's like he's infected with it. He's just reflecting God's glory to the point that people are uncomfortable. Imagine the attention that Moses got in that moment, when he was shining, daxatso. Imagine the attention that that got. And see, that's what the Holy Spirit is supposed to do for Jesus. When it says he will bring glory to me, he will glorify me, the idea here is he's going to point me out. He's going to make sure that I am shining. He's going to be the Jesus illuminator. He's going to have a magnifying glass and says, everybody look right here at Jesus. Attention, focus, notice Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's primary role in the world is to make people look at Jesus. But specifically, Jesus' death on the cross, his time in the grave, his power over death, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father to advocate for us. He says, I I want you to pay attention to Jesus, but more specifically how Jesus interacts with your life at the cross. That's the Holy Spirit's role in the world is to have us focus on the gospel. And maybe we're not experiencing Jesus' promise that it was better for him to leave because we've misunderstood what the Holy Spirit is here for. Because... If he's all about power, if it's God's power available to us, then at this end, people are saying, I want that power. And at this end, people are saying that power is not for us. And everybody in the middle is saying, I don't want to mess with that power. It's confusing. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is not God's power available to you. He is God, and he's here to bring glory and attention to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't power. And the way we think about it needs to change, but he does often operate in power. Right? I see in, in Acts 1.8, it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I see Paul in his explanation to the Corinthians of what he had done with them. He says this, he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The Holy Spirit comes with power, but the power is not the point. Jesus is the point of all that the Holy Spirit does. And so with that in mind, that maybe we've been looking at it wrong, as if it's about the power, how do we get to the point that Jesus' promise that it's better for us becomes true in our lives? Now, the other day, I was was reading in my personal study something in 1 Thessalonians that really convicted me, and I just kind of want to share it with you guys. It was a, my conviction was about me 
and about the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 said, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. It says, Don't quench the Spirit. You guys know what it means to quench the Spirit quench something, right? Like, if you're going to quench a fire, you're going to pour water on it. You're going to turn it off. You're going to turn down the intensity. You're going to manage it. He says, don't quench the Spirit. And then the convicting part for me was, I'd never read it like this before, but it looks like he says, don't quench the Spirit, and then he gives an example of what that might look like in my life. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Now, it says you can test But there's a heart attitude question here. Like, am I so uncomfortable with what God is doing in my life that I hold it all at arm's length? That I say, I'm not interested in what you're doing. I don't believe that that's you talking to me. I don't like what you said. I don't want to go that direction. I'm in control. And over here, I'm stiff-arming God. And then over here, I'm like, hey, would would you help me? Yeah, I don't really want what you, you were saying over here, but I need you to tell me something over here. Imagine a relationship like that, where on one hand you're saying, I don't want what you're giving me, and on the other hand you're saying, I need more. Right? Because we don't have a relationship with power, we have a relationship with the person of the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. What a confusing and hard relationship that is. And so we quench it. Like, imagine you wouldn't want to hang out with somebody that treated you that way. And so we're saying no all of the time, and then we're wondering why it's never helpful over here. And we're quenching the Holy Spirit by trying to to manage things, by trying to have everything under my control. And if his primary role in the world and in my life is to bring glory to Jesus and to cause me to look at the truth of the gospel, and I refuse to go along, then I'm quenching the Spirit. And then I just, I never feel it when Jesus says, it's good that I'm gone and you have the Holy Spirit. I'm like, it is not good because I've quenched it. Maybe I'm not experiencing Jesus' promise in my life because I've quenched the Spirit, and and maybe it's because I want control. Maybe Jesus isn't gaslighting us on this. Maybe it really is better, and I'm not taking advantage of it because I still want to have all the power and control. I want it to be about me, right? For those of you that are at this end of the spectrum, and and you'd say, I'm not sure if that power is for us, what happens is we we, uh, ignore or discount those parts of Scripture and those parts of our faith, and, and we do that so that we can explain our experiences, so that we can understand what we're doing. We don't want to ever be outside of our comfort zone because it's all about me. And at the other end, I see that those of us that are excited about this stuff, we have a tendency to be interested in it because it's compelling, there's power, it's importance, and pretty soon it's all about me. And on either end of the spectrum, it's all about me. Even if I'm in the middle and I refuse to answer any of my questions, it's because it's all about me. I'm comfortable here. And so we have a phrase around here. We say that life is for you, but not about you. The Holy Spirit is for you, but he's not about you. He's about bringing glory to Jesus in your life and in the world around you. The Holy Spirit is for you, but not about you. So to make this really practical, we can never use the Holy Spirit for our gain, but he can use us for Christ's glory. So what can we do so that Jesus' words are actually true in our life? I think the first thing that we can do is we can yield. Am I trying to control things 
so much that I've quenched the Spirit, right? Do I despise the things that he's doing in my life? Do I have contempt for it in my heart? Do I ignore it and pretend like he's not working only to complain that he's not working? And I think we also can pay better attention. Maybe he really is active in your life, but he's been focused on exposing or convicting sin or exposing you to the righteousness of God, or showing you what it looks like to live in a world where the defeated foe is already judged and you're victorious. Or maybe he's trying to lead you into some new truth about Jesus and you've been looking for something else the whole time. And so I'm going to put this back up on the screen. The Holy Spirit is not God's power available to you. He is God, and he's here to bring glory and attention to Jesus. Why don't we go and and live our life in a way that we partner with him in that? I'm going to pray over you real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your compassion to your disciples in this hard moment. And we have to admit that for some of us, it's, it's hard to wrestle with the idea that this is better, that you're not here, Jesus. But Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to make it evident in our lives why it's better. That you would remind us constantly of, of the gospel and, and, and our relationship with God because of it. That you'd be showing us the cross and, and our victory over the world. And that you'd be leading us to new truth. And, and where we have quenched the spirit, we repent of that. And we invite you to start afresh in our life as we look forward to partnering with you to make Jesus famous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the church may leave the building. Have a wonderful afternoon. If you're here and you're on our ministry team, would you come down front and be ready? And if you need prayer, you can find those guys down front. They'd love to pray with you.